Well, if you were here last week, you'll recall that we began looking at the biblical qualifications for a leader, what the Bible says we should look for, for a man who will serve as an elder or a deacon, uh, ladies in a deaconess position. And as we looked at this, we saw that it was a list of qualifications that don't just apply to what we should look for in a leader. It's a, it's a list that applies to all of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who are believers in Christ, because all of these are marks of Christian maturity. So they are things that should be seen in each of our lives. So as we continue looking at this list today, as we turn in our Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we pick up where we left off last time in verse 2, I want you again to be looking at this list in your own life and asking yourself, is this something that describes me? And if it's a characteristic that is not present in your life, then ask God for his help to make that more so in your walk with him. As we look at 1 Timothy 3, 2, we're told that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now, this qualification is found in 1 Timothy 1, 6 and in, uh, in Titus 1, 6 for an elder again, and, and then in 1 Timothy 3, 2 for a deacon. And when we see this where it says, uh, the husband of one wife, what a literal translation of the Greek text is, is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, I'll tell you that this is a phrase that has generated a great deal of debate and discussion. Uh, There are many views as to what this means, and we're going to walk through some of them today. But when it says that the man is to be the husband of one wife, some will take this to say, well, a leader must be married. But I want to tell you that that is not the case. You can be a single man and still be a leader in the church. For instance, you know that the Apostle Paul himself was one who was single, and yet he was a church leader. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul said, I wish that all men were even as myself am, that is, single. Paul said that that allowed him to serve the church without distraction, that he could focus fully on God and his work. A man doesn't have to be married and able to serve as an elder and deacon any more than the qualification that says that the man is to have children who believe means that he must have children in order to be a leader. What those qualifications mean is that if A applies, then B must apply as well. For instance, if you do have children, then they should be those where they come to an age of understanding and accept Christ and are being discipled in your own home. Uh, The Bible says later, one of the qualifications is, if he's not a good manager of his own home, how can he be a spiritual leader in the church? And it means it starts at home. The men need to be discipling and spiritually leading their families before they can be a spiritual leader in the church. So as we look at this qualification of what does it mean to be a one-woman man, maybe a discussion that was taking place uh, with a father and his friend one day will help us understand this. There was a little boy listening to his dad talk to his friend, and the father was explaining that when you're married to one woman, that is called monogamy. Now, the little boy later was trying to repeat the discussion with his friend, and he said, you know, when you're married to one woman for a lifetime, that's called monotony. (laughs) Now, We live in a world that tells us when you're faithful to your spouse that somehow you're missing out. That if you are a man married to a woman for a lifetime, that you're missing out. And if your marriage has lost its spice and you need to go outside of the marriage, that it's okay to cheat or to have a mistress or other things. But what God tells us is that we are to be faithful. That we are to be married to one woman and faithful to her our entire lifetime. 
Now, as we talk about being a one-woman man, what does that mean? Uh, let me give you the different views. There, there are extreme views on this. At one end of the scale, they say that you can be married to one woman only once in your entire lifetime, that even if your spouse were to die, you should not remarry because this means you are to have only one woman the entirety of your life. But again, we need to look to what the Bible says about this. In 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul says, I want younger widows to get married. These are women who themselves had lost their husband. And Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, instructs these younger women to remarry. So God is not saying that you cannot marry again in your lifetime. If a spouse dies, the scripture says that the marriage bond uh, has been broken in the sense that it is complete here on this earth. Romans 7.2 says, Uh, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So a one-woman man doesn't mean you can only be married once in your lifetime. Now on the other end of the extreme scale are those that say a one-woman man means one woman at a time. And so what that means is you can marry and divorce, marry and divorce, marry and divorce, and on it goes as long as you don't practice polygamy, where you have more than one wife at a time, which was a practice going on in the first century. Now, again, that is not God's design. As you look at Malachi 2.16, there it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. God makes it clear that that is not his design, not his desire. In Matthew 19.6, we're told, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So we know that that is not the view either on that extreme end. So what exactly does it mean to be a one-woman man? What happens if the marriage bond is broken by divorce? You know, if we lived in a perfect world, it would be wonderful. We wouldn't have to talk about this. But unfortunately, we live in a broken world, one that is broken by sin. I doubt that there is anyone here today that has not been touched at some point in your life by divorce. In my own family, I watched my parents divorce when I was a teenager. And I have five brothers and sisters, and three of my five siblings have all had a divorce. Uh, My youngest sister has been divorced from the same man twice. She married him. uh, He became unfaithful. He had multiple affairs on her. Uh, He left her for one of his girlfriends. They were divorced. The Bible says when a divorce happens, there's a hope of reconciliation. I helped her and he walk through that process. Uh, They were remarried and then he once again went back into his old ways and she divorced him the second time. So as we look at this issue of what divorce is, there is is a great deal of hurt. And I understand that in any divorce situation, there are always two sides to the story and that there are always uh, things that happen. Some of you here are victims of bad choices that you yourselves made, and other times you were hurt by your spouse who made choices, like my sister, where she didn't have any control over the relationship. Now, as we deal with this issue and the hurt that comes, it doesn't always stop with the actual pain of the marriage divorce. Uh, There are times that well-meaning people, especially Christians, will beat you black and blue with the Bible and say, this is a black and white issue. Malachi 2.16 says God hates divorce. And so therefore, there is no reason at all that a divorce should ever take place. Let me first say that for those of us who are Christians, when we walk alongside somebody going through a difficult situation like this, the Bible gives us instruction. 
It says in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore another one in the spirit of gentleness. We don't beat somebody up with the scripture and we say this is a black and blue issue and you're wrong. What the Bible tells us is we are to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Yes, we confront error. Yes, we speak the truth, but we do it in love. You've heard me say before that truth is like ice. It can be crystal clear and just as cold. And the situation here is not as crystal clear as some make it out to be. Some will say, well, it says a one-woman man, so if there has ever been a divorce, if for any reason or any case, then that person is disqualified. And you all know that I'm very conservative in my view of Scripture, and I always lean toward the, the, the conservative side of the interpretation. And I'll tell you that early on, that was pretty much the view that I had. And then as I went into seminary and I began to go deeper into the issues and I began to, to see what the scripture said and to walk alongside godly men who had spent their entire lifetime studying this issue, it shaped my thinking. And let me share with you where I've come to on this. The most comfortable place for me to go is to say that if it's ever occurred, then it's black and white. But when we interpret the Bible, we always interpret the Bible with the Bible, And so let's look at what Jesus says about this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. If you, first of all, we need to start with Matthew chapter 12 and verses 31 through 32. And again, in Mark chapter 3 and verses 22 and following, we're told that there is only one unforgivable sin. As Christians, sometimes we make divorce the unforgivable sin. We brand a person who has had a broken marriage and say they have the scarlet D on their life. And that somehow they are now uh, outside of God's ability to use. You know, it's interesting as we look at this issue, we're going to see that later, as we go through this list of qualifications, remember there's an extensive list of qualifications. And each one of those, uh, if a man fails in that area, we're going to talk about drunkenness, we're going to talk about uh, gossip, we're going to talk... So we have this one-strike rule, it seems, with marriage, that if somebody breaks this particular qualification, that somehow they are no longer qualified to serve. Now, I understand these are bigger issues in the minds of some. You have, well, if a person tells a lie or is a gossip or things, if they're habitually doing that, then the Bible says they're disqualified. But it's not a one-time broken and then they're out. So why do we do that with marriage? The Bible says that there is one unforgivable sin, and that's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is a rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You'll recall that the Pharisees, as Jesus was healing people and casting out demons and, and doing the works of God in his day, They came and they rejected Jesus, said, you are not the son of God, the promised Messiah, and the work you are doing is by Beelzebub, by the devil. They attributed the work of God to the devil, and that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Some theologians believe that you cannot even commit that sin today, but it ultimately comes around to a rejection of Jesus. And the reason it's the unforgivable sin is when we die and we stand before God in judgment, if we have rejected Jesus as our Savior then the Bible says we will be rejected and we will be sent to the lake of fire. So as we come to this issue of divorce, we saw last time in 1 Timothy 3, 2, that a leader is to be above reproach. And we talked last time that what that means is the way that our reputation uh, is, is known about us, it can affect our witness. 
And as a leader who represents the church, it therefore transfers to the church. And, and beyond that, as believers, for all of us, the way that we carry the name of Christ in our workplace, our schools, our neighborhoods can affect how people see Christ. And so this is why the leader is called to be above reproach. In the area of marriage, can be one of those where somebody says, well, here's a person who broke a commitment or couldn't even uh, be faithful to their spouse. Uh, Jay Adams has written a book called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. And he says the circumstances of a man's divorce and or remarriage may be such that a person for years afterwards, perhaps even for the remainder of his life, would fail to qualify because of the bad reputation that he bears as a result. On the other hand, his lifestyle subsequently may be such that God has changed his reputation. Moreover, he may have sinned, he may not have sinned at all in obtaining a divorce, if it were granted on biblical grounds. He goes on to say, since each case differs, it is the job of the existing officers in each instance to determine whether or not a given individual fits those qualifications. Now, Adams mentions the biblical grounds. So what exactly are these? Now, it's something that I would encourage you to go deeper in your own personal study. And so what I've done is I've put a document on our website. When you go to waysidechapel.org uh, after this Sunday, you can pull down this document. And what I've done is listed all of the Bible verses that deal with divorce, marriage, and when remarriage is, is allowed. And sometimes it can be hard to walk through it. So I put a little chart that goes with it that'll help you. And so, for instance, in this example, you'll find that there are seven uh, examples of how this works. A and B are the husband and wife marriage. And in this case, it says if A puts away B and then marries C, B cannot remarry A. Now, what I'm doing is walking you through Deuteronomy chapter 24 here. And what it says there is that if a man divorces his wife and he causes her to remarry, and then she wants to come back and remarry her original spouse. She can't do that because you now have the new marriage bond. And so, again, I know you may be feeling like you're drinking out of the fire hose as you're listening to this, which is why I've put it there for you to be able to go at your own pace as you look at what the scriptures say. And like I said, there are seven different scenarios that are listed here. And let me just walk you through a few of these. When it comes to divorce, we've already seen God does not want it to happen. Malachi 2.16 is very clear. God says, I hate divorce. So if that's the case, then why are there passages in the Bible that talk about when a divorce could happen? And we find the answer for that in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, Jesus interacts with them. And when he gets to verses 8 through 9, he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. 
Now here we see Jesus affirms God's design. It should be a husband and wife for a lifetime. He says, I don't want, as God, I don't want a marriage to ever fail. But he says, because of the hardness of man's heart, because I know there will be situations where it occurs, God then put in place guidelines and safety nets. Remember a woman in the first century who was divorced by her husband. She had no property rights. She had no legal standing. She couldn't do anything. And so God, at one level, protected women in that day who may have been uh, the party that was cast out. And so here we see one of the biblical exceptions. It says, except for immorality. Now, even when immorality occurs, that's where a husband or a wife cheats on their spouse, God again says, my hope, my heart, is that there could be reconciliation. If you've never read the book of Hosea, go to the Old Testament and read through the Old Testament book of Hosea. And there you will see where there was a prophet, Hosea, who had a wife by the name of Gomer. And Gomer was unfaithful to her husband. She became a prostitute. She was out sleeping with all kinds of other men. And it says that the the prophet went out and he even redeemed and bought his wife back after she was uh, broken and used up and cast out by everybody. He, as her husband, said, I will redeem you. I will buy you back and I will restore the broken relationship. And the book of Hosea is a beautiful picture. It's a proverb as well of God and his relationship with us. And with the nation of Israel, how Israel had been unfaithful to God to chase after all the foreign gods. And it says, even then, God didn't give up on his people. That he went out and he bought them back through the blood of Jesus, the Messiah who died to save us from our sins. And because God is willing to redeem and restore us when we've been unfaithful to him, he gives the same call for us, even in a marriage relationship, to be willing to restore a broken relationship. But he says, there are times that the person is unwilling to reconcile. There are times that you have no control of this. Paul says in Romans to be at peace with all men as far as you are able, meaning that he recognizes that there are going to be times the other person will not allow this. So in a case where there has been uh, some type of adulterous situation, God says that there is the ability for the marriage to be uh, broken. And if God allows that, then this can be seen as one of the times where a person could still serve. They may be the innocent party in this relationship. And through through, uh, no choice of their own, this has happened. It doesn't disqualify the person. Again, as Adam said, you have to look through each part of the situation, case by case. Now, another passage that we find is in uh, 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 15, It says, in a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace." So here in 1 Corinthians seven thirteen through 15, we, fe- we see another clause where it says if there has been an abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, it says the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. 
So you may have had a situation where you uh, didn't follow what God said in his word. He says uh, we as believers are not to be unequally yoked. You may have had a non-believing spouse, and this person at some point says, I'm tired of hearing about God. I don't want to go to church. I don't live by the same standards that you do under the scriptures, and they leave. In which case, it says that you have been abandoned by an unbeliever, and you are not under bondage. Now, it says if the non-believing spouse desires to remain, you certainly are not to, to uh, break the marriage bond yourself. So here we see another situation. Another factor to look at is when did the divorce happen in the life of the person? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. There are situations sometimes where a person married and divorced before they themselves became a Christian. And they didn't fully understand God's teaching or they're at a point. And what it says is you have become a new creation in Christ. The old things have been done away with. And so this is, again, a case-by-case situation where you need to explore the situation and look at the qualifications. As we're talking about this qualification of divorce, uh, what does it mean to be a one-woman man? Let me remind you that this is just one of many qualifications. Last time we saw in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5, there's an entire list of qualifications. So just because a man checks off in one area, it doesn't mean that he is per se ready to be uh, called to serve as a leader. This is, a, a again, the easiest answer would be that it never happened. And yet if it does happen, God says there are guidelines that need to be prayerfully explored. The Bible tells us as Christians, we are all part of the priesthood of believers. So what that means is you may be sitting here today as a man or a woman saying, you know, Roger, I have a divorce. I failed. I don't meet these qualifications. Does that mean God is done with me? And the answer to that is no. As we saw last time, God is in the business of recommissioning and restoring us. And you don't have to have the official title of a leader in the church in order to be that person. You can have the ministry without the formal title. You can serve. God is very clear that he wants none of us on the shelf. He wants all of us in the game. He wants all of us using the gifts that he's given to us to be used. So whether or not you ever sit as a, as a formal leader in a church, you can still be a leader in the ministry. Now, the next characteristic we come to says that a leader is to be temperate. Now, this word temperate means to be sober, not mixed with wine. Uh, the idea here is beyond just simply being addicted to wine. Now, we're going to talk next week more extensively about what does this mean, so I'm going to only uh, mention it here and pass on it. But what we find here is the meaning of this word, the, the root that we're going to come to, is the understanding that it means to be free from the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Like I said, we'll get into a deeper discussion next time about drinking and what does that particularly mean for a believer But what we need to understand here is it says we are controlled by the Holy Spirit and not other things in our life. It ties in with the qualification in Titus 1.8, which says that a leader is to be self-controlled. As believers and especially leaders in the church, we are not to be controlled by other things, including circumstances. Rather, we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Lord and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? All of us have the Holy Spirit resident in our lives. 
And all of us are to be controlled uh, by the Spirit of God. The next qualification that I want to highlight here is something that controls many people, but it's not to be found in a leader's life. It says you are not to be quick-tempered. And what this word means is inclined to anger. Now, it doesn't mean that you should never be angry. In fact, the Bible is very clear. It commands us as Christians in Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. There are times that there is a righteous anger, a righteous indignation where our heart uh, grieves and is affected the same way that God's heart is grieved and affected. But when we see this word where it says a leader is not to be quick-tempered, it's not the same Greek word. There are different Greek words for anger. And the one that is found in Ephesians 4.26 is a righteous anger. This qualification that shows up in Titus uses a different Greek word. And this word describes a person who is irritable all the time and can be set off by a spark. Now, anybody who has ever served in leadership knows that you are a lightning rod. People will come to you and they will complain and they will criticize. And if you are somebody who is easily set off, you will have lots of opportunity if you are inclined to anger, to lose your witness, and to have a bad witness as a leader because people are going to push your buttons. People are going to attack you uh, many times with no cause. And what you have to do is be able to, I lovingly refer to it as eating crow for Christ. There are times that you just simply have to uh, allow that to happen. Jesus says as believers, he said to his disciples, if they hated me, why do you think it's going to be any different for you? And so as a Christian, we are not to be those who are inclined to anger. The Bible tells us that a kind word turns away wrath. And so as you look at your life, ask yourself, are you somebody who is easily set off? Or are you somebody who allows the Holy Spirit to control you and to guide your reaction? We are to be temperate and self-controlled. Some of you have heard of Charles H. Spurgeon. He was a famous English pastor of the past. And uh, there was a contemporary of his who was named Dr. Newman Hall. And Hall is not as well known to us, but in his day, he was fairly popular. And he had written a book called Come to Jesus. And when this book was published and became popular, there was another pastor who was jealous. And he wrote a scathing review, not only of the book, but of Hall himself. And he attacked Hall. And at first, Hall bore the criticism, um, you know, fairly patiently. But when the article gained ground, and in our terms, we say it went viral, well, in that day, it began to be reprinted in various newspapers. And finally, Hall decided he needed to write a letter of protest to counter it. Now, Hall's response was full of retaliatory remarks. Uh, He went beyond just dealing with the issues to uh, personal attacks of the author, this other pastor, who had attacked him. And before he was going to mail the letter where he was responding, he took it to his friend Spurgeon to read and to uh, give him any advice. Spurgeon looked at the letter, he read it over, and he handed it back to Hall, and he said, it's very well written. It, it hits back on the points. Uh, you, you, uh, are, it's sharp, it's cutting, the other person deserves it all. But then Spurgeon said, it lacks just one thing. He said, when you sign the letter there, he said, underneath your name, put author of come to Jesus. And Hall looked at his friend and these two godly men smiled at each other and Hall tore the letter up. 
As you think about your own life, the next time you're tempted to respond to somebody in anger, ask yourself if your response would be any different if you were there in the store with the clerk or you, and you were wearing a name tag that said, I am so-and-so, a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever reached up and kind of covered your, your cross that you might be wearing around your neck? Or you've been in traffic and you're going, oh, I wish I didn't have that bumper sticker on my car that said I'm a believer. I mean, as you think about your response, ask yourself, would you respond the same way if you had to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Because when people look at us in our response, that's what they are thinking. Well, you're a Christian. You're a pastor. You're a person who represents Jesus. So a leader is to be one who is not inclined to anger. Now, the next characteristic mentioned is found in 1 Timothy 3.2 and in Titus 1.8. And it says that a leader is to be prudent or sensible. These words mean one who does not act rashly. It describes a person who thinks through their decisions. So ask yourself how you process things. Are you an impulse person or do you prayerfully consider uh, your decisions and your actions? The next word we find is respectable. Now, this is the Greek word kosmios. And I share that with you because we get our English word cosmetics from it. If you've ever uh, bought cosmetics, this is the word kosmios. And the word means literally with modesty. It has the idea even more so, it's translated often as being respectable and honorable. This word is only found two times in the Bible. The other place is in 1 Timothy 2.9, which says, I likewise, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Now, in looking how clothing has changed over the years, a clever pundit penned these words. He said, girls, when they went out to swim, once dressed like Mother Hubbard, now they have a bolder whim, and they look more like her cupboard. (laughs) Now, you recall Mother Hubbard's cupboard was bare. And so as you think about this, when it comes to what you wear, ask yourself, is your body uh, bare in the clothing that you wear? It doesn't necessarily have to be bare. Sometimes clothing can leave little to the imagination, even when your body is covered. Uh, Muhammad Ali uh, had his daughters come over to his apartment one time. And his daughter Hannah was telling the story of when she came over. And she said, my sister and I went to my father's home. And we were wearing clothes that were quite revealing. She says, the chauffeur escorted my younger sister Layla and me to my father's suite, and as usual, he was hiding behind the door waiting to scare us. After exchanging hugs and kisses, my father took a good look at us, and then he sat me down on his lap, and he said something I will never forget. He looked at me straight in the eye, and he said, Hannah, everything that God made valuable in the world is covered and hard to get. He says, where do you find diamonds? They're deep down in the ground, covered and protected. Where do you find pearls? They're deep down in the ocean, covered up and protected by a beautiful shell. Where do you find gold? It's way down in the mine, covered with layers and layers of rock. You've got to work hard to get to them. And then he looked at me with serious eyes and he said, Your body is sacred. You're far more precious than diamonds, pearls, and you should be covered too. As we look at this characteristic, 
Men, I want to say something here that it applies to us as well. It's not just women who need to be concerned what they wear. Believe it or not, the way that a man dresses can cause a woman to stumble. Now, as men, we tend to be more visual than auditory. Women tend to be more auditory. It's why they like uh, love stories and books and those kind of things. And so, as men, we need to be concerned at two levels. We need to treat women with honor and respect, not just in the way we dress or undress them with our eyes, but also in the things we say. We need to be careful of whispering sweet nothings that might lead a woman on or might cause her uh, to think there's something more to the relationship than there is. And it certainly applies to ladies as well. You know, society tells us that clothes make the man. But what the Bible tells us is there is a different standard. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that God sees not the externals. It says, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, God is more concerned about what is on the inside than the outside. But what is on the inside often shows up on the outside. And that includes the way that we dress. It includes the way that we speak. You can think of our lives as being like a cup. And you may not be able to see what is in the cup, but if you jostle somebody, what is inside spills out and comes outside. And the Bible gives us this picture in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. It says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So what is on the inside shows up on the outside. This was seen uh, in, in a situation that happened with Don Shula. Don was... Uh, coaching a football game where it was a televised, nationally televised game, and Shula was at the peak of his popularity as a coach. And Ken Blanchard, in his book titled Everybody's a Coach, tells of this situation where Shula was coaching, and there were open mics on the side of the field, and millions of viewers were surprised and shocked by Shula's explicit profanity when he let loose with a tirade. Now, letters soon arrived from all over the country voicing their disappointment of this man who had been known for his integrity and even his walk with God. Now, Shula could have responded as many do, giving excuses, saying, hey, it was a game, we were in the heat of battle, I was motivating my players, but Shula didn't do that. Instead, everybody who had included a return address on their note or letter to Shula received a personal reply a handwritten note that ended by saying, I value your respect and I will do my best to earn it again. Respect is like our reputation. We talked last week about how it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and only a moment to lose it. And it's the same way with respect. As we look at this word that a leader is to be respectable, ask yourself if you are a person who is respectable. Are you somebody who handles yourself with honor that causes others to respect you in your business relationships, in the way you date somebody, the way that you talk to others? If I were to come to your workplace and I were to talk to those that work with you, would they tell me that they respect you? Now, listen carefully. I didn't say, would they tell me they do what you want? I mean, you may be the boss. You may be a supervisor. You may be the owner. You may be a commander on a base situation, and the person uh, does what you want because you have a higher rank or you have control over their paycheck. I'm not asking if they do what you want based upon your position of authority. I'm asking, do they respect you? 
You see, leaders know that people will follow them out of respect. And if you're to be a leader in a church, especially in a volunteer organization like a church, we don't control people with paychecks. We can't fire people like they do in the business world. People are motivated by a level of love for the Lord and love for the leader. And you ask yourself, as a leader in a church situation, are you somebody who is worthy of respect? Do people follow you because you are respectable? This is what God wants us to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. What it's telling us is all of us here should be able to say that. In our schools, our homes, our workplaces. Are you able to say to somebody, Be an imitator of me just as I am of Christ? You're not perfect, but are you somebody who is following hard after Christ and saying, if you walk like I walk, you'll be a little bit closer to Christ? Now, the next qualification that we find in 1 Timothy 3.2, as well as Titus 1.8, is that a leader is to be hospitable. And this word literally means loving strangers. This, uh, this was a word that was very important in the first century. You'll recall that Christians in that day as they traveled around, it's not like our day where there are hotels and motels all around that you can stay at that are pretty safe. In that day, there were very few inns. And of those that did exist, they were not places that Christians wanted to go to. They were not safe. Uh, the food that was served there was often sacrificed to idols. And so Christians in that day stayed in the homes of other Christians. And so it was very important that you were a person who was hospitable because as a believer, you had lots of opportunity to show hospitality. Now, as Christians, we have opportunities to show hospitality as well, not just in our homes, but here at church. If you look at this word hospitable and you go old school and open a a paper dictionary like Webster's, not Wikipedia or something like that, and you look up hospitable, What you'll find in Webster's Dictionary is that it's surrounded by a few words. One of the words is hospice, and another word is hospital. And so, as you look at the definition of hospice, it's defined as a lodging for travelers, uh, young persons, or the underprivileged. If you've ever backpacked through a country, you know that they'll stay at these these hospice type of places that are just a a place to lay your head, and and, uh, that's about it. And then it's also come to be defined in our day as a place or a program designed to care for the needs of those who are terminally ill. Now, the word hospital is defined as an institution where the sick or injured are given medical care. And if you merge the meanings of these words, it gives us a great picture of what the church should look like. Because as believers, the church and our homes should serve as places where those who are weary from traveling through life can find a place of rest, healing, refreshment, and a place where they will be touched by God's love as they come in contact with us. So as you think about your own life, ask yourself, are you somebody who is hospitable? Do you love strangers? Do you love other believers? Is your home a place of refuge? Is your home a place where your kids' friends love to come? Not so much because there will be overflowing candy jars and cookies set out and things like that, but is it a place where they'll be able to come and just feel safe and just feel that there's an adult who's glad to see them around and you're not so much worried about the mess that they're going to make in the house? As you think about your home, you may be thinking, you know, 
I really don't have that big of a house. I don't have anything that's fancy. And friends, you don't need that. All you need is a loving heart. Karen Maines defines the difference between hospitality and entertaining in her book, Open Hearts, Open Home. She says, entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home, with my clever decorating and my cooking. But hospitality seeking to minister says, this home is a gift from my master, and I use it as he desires. Hospitality aims to serve, but entertaining puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, the house cleaning done, then I will invite people over. But hospitality puts people first. No furniture will sit on the floor. The decorating may never get done. You come anyway. The house is a mess, but your friends come home with us. Entertaining subtly declares this home is mine. It's an expression of my personality. Look, please, and admire. But hospitality whispers, what is mine is yours. As Christians, this is the attitude that God wants us to have. For us to have the proper priority that says, we love strangers. We love those who are in need of of a comforting place to be, a safe place to hear about the Savior. Every time we come in contact with somebody, whether it's here at church, whether it's at your workplace, at your school, or in whatever situation God has you intersect with somebody, ask yourself if you are hospitable. As we close today, I want you to consider the different areas we've talked about today. And to ask yourself if there are changes you need to make in your life. As we talk about loving strangers here, as we talk about what our love life should look like as believers, as we come to the communion table here, we are reminded of what it really looks like. God has given us the standard of what our love for one another should look like. Because what we find at the communion table is how God loved us, how he loved us while we were far from him. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were far from God, he left his home in heaven to come here, to take our place by going to the cross, to die as the payment, to purchase us, to buy us back when we had been unfaithful by being the payment for our sins. The book of Romans tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we come to this communion table today, we are reminded of the great price that Jesus paid to purchase me and you. In a moment, the men are going to pass the elements. You'll take a piece of bread representing his body and a cup representing his blood. I want you to take and hold those elements and to think about how much God loved you how much God loved you to the point that he was willing to give his son. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have the gift of eternal life. And as you hold that, those elements representing God's great gift to you, I want you to look at your own life today and ask yourself, is there some sin you need to confess? Is there some part of your relationship with God that hasn't been right that you need to confess? And it may be that you're here today and you've never come to Christ. And I invite you today to receive God's great gift of new life, to say to him, I am a sinner and God, I know I've been far from you, but I know you sent your son to be my savior. 
I thank you that you died in my place, and today I want to accept you as my Savior. The Bible says that if you will turn from your sin and to Jesus to be your Savior, then you will be saved. And I invite you, as the elements are passed, if you've never done that, if you're ready to say to God, I'm ready to turn from my sins into you, to take those elements and to accept him as your Savior. This communion table is a place where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. It's open to all who are believers in Jesus Christ, not just those who are part of Wayside. So if you're a believer in Christ, I invite you to take the elements and hold them, and we'll receive them together. Men, will you serve us, please?
That song said, how beautiful is the body of Christ. I want to remind you that in the book of Isaiah, it says of Christ and his body that he had no stately form. That he was stricken. He was beaten. He was rejected. But it says by his piercing, by his stripes, we were healed. It says that we who owed the penalty, it says the stroke of death was due us, but he took our place. Indeed, how beautiful is the body of Christ, eaten in remembrance of him. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. The cup we hold represents the blood of our Savior, the one who died, the one who allowed his blood to be shed to wash away my sins and yours. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we hold in our hand represents the way that we were washed clean, the way that we were declared righteous in the eyes of God. Again, through the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your example to us of what our love should look like. And so as we leave here today, God, as men and women who bear the name of our Savior. May we leave looking for ways to point others to you. May our lives, our homes, the way we conduct our business, the way we carry ourselves even on the street, may it draw people to you, Jesus. May we be those who bear the marks of you, our Savior. Send us out now, Lord, to be your witnesses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.